Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Skylines is brought to you by 100 Resilient Cities. Pioneered by the Rockefeller Foundation, 100 Resilient Cities is helping cities around the world become more resilient to the physical, social and economic challenges of the 21st century. You can find out more at 100resilientcities.org. This is a Manhattan-bound B-Express train. The next stop is... Grand Street. Mind the Welcome to Skylines, the City Metro podcast. I'm Stephanie. And I'm John. And this week we're talking about, well, I'm not going to lie to you, we're still talking about the apocalypse. That's going to be the theme for, for possibly the rest of our adult lives. As far as climate change is concerned, we're outside of the realm of debating causality, and we're now in the domain where we have to collectively respond to the effects. What the resilient city does is think about how can what we do also strengthen us for future disasters. John, welcome back. Hello. This is nice. This is, this is literally the first time we've been in the same room since, I don't know, it's been about a month, hasn't it? I think it has been about a month. Which is which is which is very because I've been off gallivanting. I've done some gallivanting. You're 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 off at the moment. You're you're are you gallivanting? I'm not really gallivanting. I'm working on my on my PhD. Oh, how's that going? Oh, it it continues. I, I'll probably I'll probably finish it before the impending apocalypse. I mean, has it occurred to you that maybe it's not worth finishing because of the impending apocalypse? It has, but then I'm not really sure what else is worth doing. So I may as well finish writing this. Terrible, terrible navel gazing book. <laughs> At least you will die with a doctorate. I will die with a doctorate, which is. Um, I, I tried to come up with some valuative judgment there, and actually, just nothing feels like it matters. Um, so, yeah, I'm in a good place. <laughs> I feel like I'm genuinely losing my mind. Um, election night, that was bad. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, okay, I actually. I had a pretty great, great trip. I had a really fantastic trip in the US. It was great. Like every day, like it was one of those. I started taking notes on what we were doing every day because every day was so full of sort of new, fascinating experiences and people and so on. And, it's like, and it felt like I was there for much longer than two weeks. Um, and the only slight fly in the ointment was when we got to election night and um, Donald Trump won. Which... Yeah. Can we let? Let's. So I want to ask you more about your trip in general because I think last time we spoke it was foreboding with the side of the interstate system and i want to hear more about cities in the states but also why did the cities not save us john we were up on the sofa two three in the morning going it's going to be fine the big urban areas haven't returned yet you know these states could still go blue the margins very close and the cities did not save us no no they didn't did they um i mean there was that where it all started to go wrong was I felt really bad because I texted my, my wife and my father-in-law saying the results from Florida look really good. Miami-Dade is, is very blue. Broward is very blue. And those are kind of the counties in the Miami metro area where we, where we, where we spend some time. And it's like, woohoo. And, and they kind of, all those places did come out really strongly for Hillary Clinton. But the problem was that it turned out that there were other places that came out really strongly for Donald Trump. And like it just felt like all, all the way around, people kept saying, oh, I know this 93-year-old, he's never voted before, but he's really excited about Donald Trump. And you kind of dismiss that as nonsense. And it's possible it maybe it wasn't nonsense to a certain extent. 
So basically, contra Stephen Bush's maxim, non-voters did vote. Yeah, I kind of think they did to a certain extent. But it's fine. It's fine. I mean, what's the worst that can happen? You've got... Um, oh, God, don't say that. Just, he's a climate change denier. We've got um, actual neo-Nazis in positions of, of power. People doing ironic Nazi salutes at rallies. That's... That's a lark, isn't it? I just read the full transcript of this interview he did with the New York Times, the, the on-the-record portion of this meeting they had the other day, um, where he talks about why he thinks we need to be open-minded about climate change, because actually the hottest day ever was in the 1890-something. Did you like Miami? I love Miami. I didn't get to go to Miami this time. I've been to Miami many times. I don't want to talk about Miami. I've, done, I've talked about Miami before. Um, so firstly, it's really boring, and it also sounds a bit sort of humble-braggy, what I'm doing right now. But also, the other problem with Miami is Miami is not long for this world. Yeah, that's true. Miami is literally going to die, Yeah. which no one's really talking about. Yeah. So that's a problem. Um, have you seen the exciting news about the Arctic War on this subject? You know when I said I really cannot talk about this? <laughs> like... Yeah, and you know when I said I was going to ignore that because I thought it would make quite good radio. Like... Okay. Um, I mean, like, genuinely, can we not? <laughs> <laughs> really? That's yeah. Like, I kind of, I feel we need to move on to something other than the... Okay, John, give me a piece of good news. So today, as we're recording this, it's Autumn Statement Day, which, you know, weirdly, they've decided to do it in... in autumn for once as opposed to like a week before christmas or something which is always a bit <laughs> suspect but that's just me being weird but they're banning they're banning letting agent fees <gasps> so yeah foxons and the like are no longer going to be allowed to just randomly charge you 500 quid for a piece of photocopying just because they fancy it just because they can so you know as a renter you 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 okay with that do you think like are you, are you worried about put the nice people of foxons i mean their share price has just crashed i mean shouldn't we isn't that a tragedy I'm, I'm sorry for those of you listening at home, the barely concealed glee evident on John's face right now is a delight. Um, I'm actually furious about this announcement. I'm really, really unhappy about it. Is it because it came like a month after you moved out? It is, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Go on, how much? It is. How much did I spend on fees? Yeah. Oh, God, I've completely blanked it out. I know it was, it was, it was a one-bed flat. I think overall it was three and a half grand to move, including the deposit. Yeah. Anyway, it was hundreds of pounds worth of fees for for two of us. I got. I did get a press release from. Um, I, I won't name them, but the terrible online estate agency who sent me sent me a constant stream of all terrible press releases. Like they sent me one before the U.S. election comparing prices in, uh, like Trumpington in Cambridge and somewhere called like St. Hillary's or something. It's like oh, just just die why can't you people literally just die? think about what you have decided to do for a living and you are sending these and i can't believe anybody is picking them up i think you're just annoying every housing journalist in britain on a daily basis and you'll get paid for this because you could they can pay you for this because they have so much excess money sat around the place because they're charging these ridiculous exorbitant fees and they sent over a press release today saying this was terrible news for renters this is not terrible news for renters or what possible level is it terrible news for renters to stop actual parasites from taking money from them every time they go uh, I'm actually um, what, <laughs> what, what colour am I right now? Same colour as your jumper so kind of like oh, a sh- puce slash aubergine <laughs> But the, 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 I hate these people. I just hate them. They just they you, provide no economic value. And they're like, oh, this is going to hurt tenants. No, it's not. You hurt tenants. You people. They should be in prison. They should literally be in prison for this. If someone breaks into your house and steals your laptop, that is considered a crime. But if somebody says, oh, please give me £400 because I let you sign this piece of paper... That's apparently fine, except now it's not. Okay, first of all, I really think you need to see the difference between those two things. And secondly, yes, I'm very, very pleased that they have abolished these fees, really, even though I just paid all of them a month ago. Okay, so <laughs> do you think there is any... I mean, the, 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 the standard knee-jerk, oh, it's pro-business argument is like, well, you know... Anything you do in a free market is go. Any cost you create in a free market is going to get loaded onto the weakest people in that market. Those are the tenants, so they're going to have to pay for these costs in higher rents. That is my that is my theory. Is that 
they will find a way to make that money elsewhere, whether that is, you know, they then charge the landlord higher fees for letting through an agent or um, charge the landlord more money for property management and things like that. And those those costs are then still passed on to the tenant. Wrong. No, really? no, they're not going to do They're not going to do it. Have you seen Foxton's share price today? Yes. It fell like 11% on the back of this announcement. It was like, it's brilliant. It's like someone's trashed all their minis all at once. Um, but no, I'm not, I'm not buying this because, I mean, firstly, investors clearly aren't, aren't buying it either because they think Foxton's is going to take a hit here. But the reason I, I don't think they're going to be able to pass on, they'll probably be able to pass on some of the costs, but... A lot of it's not actually administrative cost. A lot of it is just sort of pure profit for the lettings agent. So it's not clear they're going to be able to pass that to landlords because there is competition for landlords' business, which will keep prices down. The second thing is, even if they do pass the actual costs onto landlords, which they probably will, which is fair enough, and that will feed back into rent, but that's going to be feeding into everybody's rent rather than just the rents of people who are unlucky enough to go through through particularly bad lettings agents. And also it will be spread across the entire period you're renting rather than rather than being a lump sum every time you move. So it'll be more transparent. It's a bit of a false economy though, isn't it? Um, in what way? Well, in that there's, there's nothing that says they will spread that exact same cost over the period you're renting. Oh, no, but it's not like they're consciously... The, 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 it doesn't work like they consciously think, well, this has cost us £500 or whatever, so we'll spread it. It doesn't work like that. It's just lettings agents do have costs and they have to recoup them when they stop being lettings agents, so they will somehow do that by charging higher fees to landlords. And if landlords are paying higher fees, they will try and charge higher rents. Wait, and, so, and tenants now have more money because they're not paying these fees, so they will probably those they will bid up rent slightly, but not very much, I think. And also, it's just, it will just be more transparent. I mean, they've done this in Scotland, and the experience suggests that actually there isn't like a massive increase in rent off the back of this. It's just some some lettings agents can no longer buy a Ferrari, for example. I just find the idea that businesses don't go, here's how much money we're going to lose from this, how can we recoup that cost by charging our customers elsewhere naive? No, of course, <laughs> of course they'll do that, but that doesn't mean they can. That doesn't mean they have the market power to do that. Like, I'm sure, like, Starbucks would like to be charging you £20 for a coffee, but it can't, because if it does that, nobody goes to Starbucks anymore. It's no different than that. But Starbucks coffee is a loss leader in Starbucks, whereas fees are not on like that the estate agent has two revenue incomes renting and buying they're completely different business models i think we're i think we're possibly over <laughs> we've overwonked the situation yeah. i think we're, we're, we're currently now produ- we're now producing a podcast that requires a graph to understand it <laughs> talking about graphs have you seen the news about the arctic oh sod off john <laughs> the ice isn't coming back <laughs> the ice is all gone <laughs> but we'll move away from that anyway you know every foxton's is like a mini fridge i know when maybe we, were... we should take away their mini fridges and put them in the arctic when we were last house hunting we used to go to foxton's and pretend to be interested in properties just to get coffee out of them because it was like us this is the most pathetic anti-establishment <laughs> protest of all time <laughs> okay coffee is also a lost leader for foxton's i know but like we entered there were no intention of giving them any business like we will listen to you talk at us for five minutes in exchange for a free coffee and we will laugh at you i'm not sure you could pay me to listen to foxton's at describe properties i couldn't afford i'm not saying i've never made bad life choices hey i'm ryan reynolds at mint mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. <laughs> anyway, we should probably get on to the, the core topic of this episode. We are talking about the end of the world. Or not specifically, or, or how we're, we're preparing for the end of the world. How we're preparing for the end of the world. Obviously, you know, for a whole variety of reasons, our cities face a lot of existential threats like right now. Some of them are economic, as we've seen in what happened in the, the vote in the Rust Belt. Some of them are environmental. Some of them are probably too many estate agents. But there are a lot of organisations out there that are trying to quantify and tackle those risks. Um, and actually make our cities future-proof. So this week we're going to hear from them. This is the Blue Line train to Largo Town Centre. The next stop is Federal Centre Southwest. My name is uh, Dante Disparte. I'm the founder and CEO of a company based in D.C. called Risk Cooperative. And we effectively help organizations deal with risk, readiness, and resilience. Cities generally seem pretty sort of healthy things. I mean, you wouldn't think it's quite hard to wipe out a city, thankfully. So what does, what does risk mean in, in the sort of urban context? Well, so I think it, it shows up in two forms. Uh, and, and on one front, you have the acute variety risk, which are the ones that are of the smoking crater kind of nature. And on the other one, you have the more attritional, insidious risks that show up and that can really collapse the city. And those are largely driven from underinvestment in things like critical infrastructure and, and how a city works and flows. That's a concise answer. I like the, I like the phrase smoking crater. So let's, let's, let's unpack that bit first. As I said, it's actually it's pretty rare to, to find any cities from certainly modern history that have just gone. They do tend to persist. So what what are the kind of the real sort of existential risks? One one example that just to bring it a little closer to home is that, you know, post Katrina New Orleans has not quite recovered so many years after Hurricane Katrina. That that, you know, the, the Katrina diaspora, the internally displaced people still number in the hundreds of thousands. And that, you know, the vibrancy of that city really was always driven by the people of that great city. And so the fact that they have been displaced for such a long time and that the city's economic profile has changed pretty dramatically means that, you know, the recovery process of something a weather-related risk like Katrina has taken um, decades. Another example is, you know, you start to have uh, these smog red alerts being reported anywhere from uh, parts of China and the major cities in Beijing and Shanghai to Paris, where effectively an acute air quality issue is halting vehicle traffic, uh, effectively halting sort of the lifeline of an economy in a city by not having lorries and, and cars uh, be able to move around. I mean, you're, you're basically paralyzing your city, albeit for a short period of time in, in these types of cases. It nonetheless really heightens, um, heightens people's awareness. And what about, what about climate change? I mean, that presumably fits into this, this bit of the picture as well, does it? It, it does. And I think it's, it's one of those things where I always say that it, as far as climate change is concerned, we're outside of the realm of debating causality, and we're now in the domain where we have to collectively respond to the effects, um, would be one high-level point. The second is that this is no longer a foregone issue for emerging markets and developing countries to contend with. That climate change is very much an issue that, that the advanced economies in major cities around the world have to deal with. And just you know, a handful of recent examples are... You know, the images of sandbags protecting, you know, the global financial centers in New York City during Sandy and Irene before it. Um, the fact that a great city like Boston, which is otherwise as winter ready as they come, faced, you know, more than 100 inches of snow 
last winter. And, and something like that really does cripple a city. It cripples public finances in terms of snow removal costs and other things like that. And so, again, whatever the cause of these um, more extreme weather events, the, the fact that the effects are really hurting us and have us directly in their crosshairs worldwide um, really proves the, the business case for resilience. OK, so let's talk about some of those more insidious risks you talk about, because, I mean, it's quite easy to get your head around what resilience means when we're talking about climate change or, or, you know, a, a, or what the smoking crater is when we're talking about a terrorist attack. But what are the kind of more more subtle risks that cities are facing that perhaps are not grabbing the front pages in the same way? A couple of examples of the insidious ones are, you know, threats to critical infrastructure require investments outside of the four year electoral cycle. D.C.'s metro system, to bring it somewhat close to home, you know, the, the capital city of the United States, has all but collapsed under the weight of underinvestment. And so it, it not only represents a short-term public safety issue, it also represents a long-term sort of issue in terms of how vibrant will this economy be and will we have alternate modes of mass transit available to us, um, despite the fact that we're really growing the population of the city at a, at a pace that um, our transport infrastructure can't keep up with. And so that, that's one example of the insidious variety. You know, um, another one is energy and the electricity matrix is not only massively vulnerable to more deliberate and sophisticated cyber risks, it is also just as vulnerable to underinvestment and mismanagement. So two recent examples. Just a few weeks ago, the entire energy grid in Puerto Rico gave out. This is a U.S. territory with three and a half million American citizens that was um, sent into darkness for a few days, largely due to underinvestment, right? So that kind of insidious risk, I think, is na native really all over the world. And we need, um, we need a broader strategy to uh, resilient infrastructure. How do you kind of deal with that in a democratic political cycle because it's i mean it does seem to me it's the point you've already made that all these investments are long term and you can't you can't cut a ribbon on investing more in in stopping the DC, existing dc metro from from collapsing there's kind of no political capital to be made there so how do you actually how do we incentivize politicians to kind of actually deal with this stuff well, I, I think it's going to be hard for politicians to get reelected when they, one, lose their base. You know, if, if you've uh, had large scale resettlement and displacement from your city because it's ground to a halt. And, you know, you think about uh, at some level, Detroit having to reinvent itself because of the industrial shift is emblematic of what I described, that, that you know, you could remain in office all alone and without a budget. In a, in a dilapidated state house, or you could respond to long range risks and, and get ahead of these types of issues. And, you know, so I think you're right that in the short run and, and in an environment of deep partisanship, it's difficult to talk about things other than short term point scoring. But I think ultimately the electorate wants big change and they want change of a multitude of varieties. One, the type of thing that helps them, you know, uh, get on and move up whatever economic ladders we have um, in the United States and elsewhere. But two, they, they want to feel uh, somewhat sheltered and, and resilient from these shocking events that are occurring, you know, uh, with much more regularity. I mean, think about um, Zika, for example, you know, for the first time in U.S. history, the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, have issued a travel advisory in the continuous United States for parts of Florida. Now, here you've had a risk that has emerged that hasn't caused any direct loss to property, any direct uh, physical damage. And, and nonetheless, there's parts of Florida that are, you know, prospectively a no-go zone that have a lot of direct economic and, and consequential harm um, that someone has to respond to, right? And, and I think in that environment, the, the polity, the public will demand change of their political process and leadership. Do you have any examples of, of cities you think are facing particularly great risks that, that may be under-discussed? If you think about um, Brussels comes to mind, right, for a wide variety of reasons, but not, not least of which is the, uh, you know, the recent 11-day shutdown following the uh, terror attacks in Paris on um, November 13th. That, you know, for a manhunt, the really stark choice 
had you know that the security leadership had to make in Brussels to shut down the city effectively. It's an 11-day shutdown of the political capital of Europe at a time where you know Europe itself needs alignment and it needs people in office doing their work. You had a complete shutdown for something that um, again is not unprecedented to see more of these types of low-grade. This would fall into the acute bucket that I described earlier. You know, and so you have otherwise resilient infrastructure, you have well-functioning mass transit systems, you have, uh, you know, largely shielded society from at least the immediate impacts of climate change. And yet this other risk variety in the era of man-made risk of these acute social polarizations, you know, physical security exposures show up and have really gripped the capital of Europe in some uh, in some surprising ways. We have to also recognize that not unlike the Zika example I gave earlier, that ideologies don't get stuck in customs either. And you know, ISIS, whether it's exporting its people or it's exporting its hate through social media and others, that the only way you combat that and and maintain a free society is that you have to have a countering argument that people can latch onto, right? And that radicalizing your own society and radicalizing your own citizens, you know, really there is no uh, one-off solution for this stuff, that it it really requires a long-range approach. Are there any cities you think kind of make good examples for for others on the resilience score? Yeah, I think, you know, New York at one level, and I know it's, it's easy to highlight New York, and I'll try to name a few others as well, but I think in New York City... One, for the fact that it, it has been visited by the worst examples uh, of 21st century risk and man-made risk um, in recent memory. I mean, New York has seen it all from, you know, weather-related events to large cyber exposures to the great blackout of 2003 and 9-11. Nonetheless, I think the, the New York sort of model and the attitude of resilience that starts at the individual household and citizen level is frankly what is required right now, that, that the combination of factors, the public-private sort of approach to resilience, um, and that it really becomes something that keeps you in office politically. Beyond New York, you know, I think, I think there, there's a wide variety of other cities around the world that are at least embracing plurality, and at least embracing the notion that, that you know, we are an urban world, that more of humanity lives in a city today than at any point in human history. And that in those cities, you need to have a place for everyone, poor, rich, and and migrant and native-born all have to have a place in those cities. And that while on one front, their, res- their, their infrastructure may be, uh, you know, may score poorly on the resilience kind of scorecard, on the other front, because they're so new and because they're really the crucible of, of all of this humanity, I think emerging market cities have a chance to get this recipe right. Okay, so that was a pretty, that was a pretty doomy conversation, let's be honest. But but there are organisations uh, out there who are who are helping deal with these risks, and one of them has been nice enough to sponsor this podcast. I'm Michael Berkowitz. I'm the president of 100 Resilient Cities, an NGO that was pioneered and spun off by the Rockefeller Foundation. Basically, I'm kind of looking for 100 Resilient Cities 101. So, fundamentally, urban resilience is about a city's ability to survive disaster. But don't just think about that as the sudden disasters, you know, the shocks. So, things like earthquake, hurricane, tornadoes flooding, terrorism, and so on. Think about it also in terms of the slow burn, what we call chronic stresses that impact cities. So long-term food, water, and energy shortage, you know, several decades of really high levels of crime and violence, like you saw in Medellin, Colombia in the 80s and 90s. Or you can think about it in terms of shifting macroeconomic trends and a climate that disadvantage a city. So think about this the American city of Detroit overexposed 
to a single industry, the American automobile industry, which became uncompetitive and it led to this slow but you know existential crisis that Detroit finds itself in now. We try to cast a very broad net. People and cities have different entry points. Some cities are more concerned with flooding or hurricanes or climate change or, or, or earthquakes or terrorism. But ultimately, it's about, you know, resilient cities find how to think about the two, you know, many things together and both in terms of their risks, but also in terms of their opportunities. So, so I'll give you an example of this interplay between many shocks and stresses. So Paris applied to our program in 2014 on the back of a very environmental agenda. They wanted to talk about river flooding and air pollution and the urban heat island effect, which is where cities get hotter than the surrounding areas and they don't cool down as much at night. And that's very damaging to human health and so on during heat waves. And that was in 2014. And then 2015 happened where you had two terrorist attacks and a refugee crisis um, that enveloped Europe. And all of a sudden, they, Paris and needed to have a conversation about what it meant to be Parisian and French and European. What the resilient city does is think about, you know, how can what we do to begin to address our environmental issues um, and meet the challenges and commitments of COP21 and so on, how can what we do for that also strengthen us for other future disasters, shocks and stresses? And in Paris's case, just to make it very tangible, so think about the things that the city's going to do in order to meet environmental commitments. They're going to, you know, implement bike share, more bike shares and electric vehicles and bike lanes. They might do some rezoning. You know, Paris is very low density in the city itself, um, which has driven all of the new residential building to the suburbs. And the suburbs and the city are very disconnected, which is what leads to isolation and radicalism and so on. And so how can every single program and project and initiative that Paris does in order to meet its environmental goals and commitments, how can that also further integration and cohesion? You know, so you think about how you might design those projects with a you know, more inclusive base, how you might source and build them how you might actually uh, cite, cite them and, and do all of that. Each one of those projects has an opportunity to make Paris stronger, more robust, more resilient to whatever happens if, you know, if you think about it in that way. And that's what, at, at the essence, is what resilient cities do. Why are we thinking about this now? Because with, with the exception of kind of the rising environmental crisis, a lot of the stuff you described there is stuff that's not necessarily no. no. Like cities have always had to respond to challenges about the way their economy has changed or social issues or whatever it is. So why why has this idea of resilience emerged as, as a discipline in the 21st century? You know, more and more we're connected, um, you know, in terms of the global media and in terms of the flow of ideas and information. And so what happens in one city now impacts, you know, more and more cities, both in terms of awareness raising, but also in terms of actual stuff happening. So when Ebola has an outbreak in, in West Africa, it's not long before it's somewhere else. When there's a movement like uh, Occupy Wall Street that starts on Wall Street and soon enough it's in, you know, cities throughout you know, the U.S. And, and, and frankly around the world. So I, I think the connectivity is one reason why. The second is I, I do think that we're living in, a, in, in the era of the city, right? Cities are both seen to be our biggest risk with this rapid urbanization um, and people coming to the cities faster than the cities can provide the infrastructure to, to account for them. But there also are great opportunity. They're the places where, you know, you have mayors unlike presidents and, and, and prime ministers that are, are practical that aren't burdened by ideological constraints, that are innovative, that really just want to make things work and make people's lives better. Um, and it's in cities where innovation and wealth generation happens and all of this great stuff and people from different walks of life live cheek to jowl uh, in ways that they don't in rural areas, maybe. Um, and all of that makes cities a very hopeful, you know, and urbanism a very hopeful place 
uh, to be working right now. And so I think between those two, that we know the things that can go wrong and we see it demonstrated day in and day out, and then the, the fact that, that cities are more and more the sort of topic du jour uh, make this a place uh, uh, of real importance right now. To what extent do you see something like 100 Resilient Cities as kind of a, almost a sort of forum just for cities to talk to each other and share ideas and so on? I think in the past, too often, cities thought that only things that were invented in their city would work in their city. And so they were loath to go and look at what other cities were, were doing. Each city operated in its own kind of silo, uh, with its head down, trying to fix its own problems. And there has been a recognition through networks like 100RC and others um, that more and more cities need to share best practice so that they can leapfrog each other and build on each other. And, and there's a real efficiency to stealing and borrowing ideas in one city uh, for, for your own. So that that is definitely a part of it. I would say that 100RC also is, you know, we spend a lot of time organizing cities in similar ways. So we make them use many of the same tools, a lot of the same definition. We help them hire something called the chief resilience officer. Um, and, and we insist on a sort of uh, standardization and a rigor um, so that position, that CRO position, looks the same roughly in Rio as it does in Bangkok, as it does in Samarang, Indonesia, as it does in New York. Now, of course, every city is a little different, but trying to get you know cities to look and act the same, it allows the scaling of solutions. It allows those who want to work in cities a level of standardization which makes that process easier. And so we're not just about letting, so this is a long way to get back to your question, which is we're not just about letting cities, you know, do some exchanges and work in a network and um, exchange ideas. That is an important part. But we're also about helping cities change and look at their problems in a different way and not just continue to do the, the same old things that they've been doing. I mean, you guys now work with over 100 cities, I think. So what are the common challenges you've spotted? It's a very misnamed organization at this stage, surely. No, no, we're, we're at 100. We're trying to hold the line at 100. We, we, I mean, lots of other cities have tried to dabble in it, but we're, yeah. we're, 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 we're at 100. We will be a misnamed organization at some point, either because cities will fall off <laughs> or because we'll add more on or both. So it's, it's You're true. not going to turn to the 101st city and say, sorry, guys, we can't help. You're on your own. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, 100 is a lot. And we know it. You and I can talk about that intellectually. But it's 100 cities across six continents and 48 countries. 23 official languages and then a bunch of other. So just that kind of breadth and, um, you know, and there are diverse cities, right? So you've got big cities like Bangkok and Rio and uh, Lagos, Nigeria and um, Mexico City. And then you've got real small cities like Ramallah, Palestine and Vaile, Denmark and uh, Boulder, Colorado and, and everything in between. Um, and while I'm on it, I will say, you know, there's a really magic about a mid-sized city. It's the city that's not s so big um, that it can't change and, and can't be reactive that way. And it's not and it's not so small that it doesn't have capacity. You know, there's that middle sized city that has some capacity and the ability to do something about it. So what's mid size mean in this context? Well, uh, somewhere, let's say, between three, four hundred thousand and a million. And that just being mid-sized doesn't guarantee that, but I, I do think that we're seeing like it's the New Orleans, it's the Rotterdams, it's the Samarang Indonesia is a good example of that. It's not Jakarta, um, so you know when they want to do something, they that like there are enough, there are a bunch of really smart, capable people there. Um, so it's not a backwater, but but yet they're small enough that when, you know, the decision makers decide to go in a di direction, it's possible. Yeah, anyway, I kind of got sidetracked into, yeah, count, yeah. into counting yeah. cities there. But I mean, yeah. what, you work with all these cities. What are the kind of common themes you're noticing? Yeah. So uh, one common theme I would say is about governance. And by that, I mean 
you know, how is the both the city in the, in other words, the munis- in this case, I'm talking about the municipal government, the private sector, civil society, and the other lay- layers of government, whether those are state and national governments or provincial governments, how are all those things organized together? And what kind of authority does the chief executive of the city, whether that's the mayor or sometimes the governor or intendente in, in Latin America and so on, what kind of power does, do those people have? And that's a real challenge because inevitably no mayor or, or, or governor or CEO of, of a city has enough power to really change the things that make a city more resilient. In other words, you know, better, m- more diverse economy with middle class job base, better transportation, water, energy, um, you know, cohesive communities where neighbors check on neighbors, all of those things, right, are the things that help cities survive disaster. And no head of a city, you know, mayor or otherwise, controls all those things. And so one common challenge is how comfortable is that mayor reaching out across the, the, the lines of his or her formal authority and, and how effective are they at building coalitions and driving their agenda? And how invested are the other key stakeholders in making that happen? And, if, and, and, and in good cities, that really happens um, and you're able to make progress. And in places where that is fragmented and the stakeholders are not interested in cooperating, then that's a problem. And so I'll give you an example of that. The Indian city of Bangalore... Indian municipalities have very little authority. Most of it sits at the state level or the national level. And in Bangalore, the state and the municipality are different parties. They're not particularly cooperative. You have a city that has exploded, you know, in terms of population, has all kinds of resilience-related challenges, and yet not a ton of, you know, seemingly not a ton of ability in order to... Not a lot of ability to solve for them. Oh, one last thing about governance. Does the mayor have the ability and the city have the ability to float their own debt? Do they, can they, do they have control of their own finances? And we see this battle playing out in different places. One place is in Dakar, Senegal, where the mayor had a bond ready to issue to fix some of the infrastructure and the president stepped in and challenged his authority and ultimately won. Uh, in order to release that fund, so it's you know that th- those kind of governance challenges I think are are, are really key. Um, it's it's interesting you you mentioned that actually because it, I increasingly think that one of the problems British cities have had is that so many of them there there is no mayor, there is no central authority. They're fragmented into a number of different boroughs in the same metro. Yeah, and I think that has made it very hard to deal with a lot of the challenges they face. No, I, I think that's right. And where you get, you know, the few cities in, in, in the UK where you have the directly elected mayors, London, Bristol, G- Greater Manchester, I think, is going that way now, too. Those are the more effective cities because you have someone who's empowered to look across that. Even if the mayor of London only controls a couple of things, you know, you, you see the, the ability, regardless of what you think of, of Boris Johnson, you see the ability of a guy like Boris to lead on issues that he doesn't even necessarily control directly. Uh, the mayor of London, uh, Sadiq Khan, uh, you know, controls what transport for London and policing and crime, right? Those are the two things. Everything else is controlled in the boroughs. And yet, even that is, 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 a, is a, a step above a lot of other English and British cities where there, there's not even that kind of overarching authority. This is a Brooklyn-bound A express train. The next stop is Dykeman Street. This is a 125th Street-bound A express train. The next stop is 59th Street, Columbus Circle. So, being a cheery sort, and also, let's be honest, because Steph was not actually in the office to stop me from doing this this morning, I did ask the followers of our Twitter feed, what's scaring you? The end of the world is coming, what are you frightened of? James O'Malley suggested the breakdown of world order and the institutions that underpin global stability. Nice. Yeah, it was uh, 
think things got real here pretty quickly. Um, Simon Alvey suggests the fact that we'll all be killed by nuclear war or antibiotic resistance before then. Good. Thanks, Simon. Ed Jefferson, who, um, if you've been reading the site recently, Ed Jefferson was pretending to be me while I was in America. He was a, was a temporary editor. Ed Jefferson came up with the idea of three Bernard Matthews is sitting down for dinner together. Wait, there's the turkey one. I, d- I don't, I don't know where he's got this from. I'll put, the, I'll put the screenshot in the show notes. But he's literally got a picture of three Bernard Matthews having the guy who used to do turkeys. I don't yeah, know, I, I wondered if there were more Bernard Matthews. If there was a turkey one, and maybe also just like a we could get, we could get like a climate change Bernard Matthews, and then we could get into like a fascist one. Yeah. <laughs> I did also ask, you know, what, what's giving you the slightest scintilla of comfort right now? What are you happy about? There were there were fewer takers of this one, actually. But Phil Purser-Hallard suggested the collapse of Western infrastructure after a nuclear holocaust would mean no more Christmas adverts, which is a definite plus. Can we not talk about the UK signing the Paris Climate Agreement or another okay. good thing? <laughs> OK, what are, you, what are you optimistic about at the moment? You're going to finish your PhD soon? Yeah, I'm going to finish recording this podcast soon. (laughs) (laughs) Why do I get the sense as soon as we stop this, you're going to tell me you don't want to do this anymore? (laughs) Um... Okay, well, I'm I'm optimistic about... There there were some good announcements, other than the letting fees thing. There were some good announcements in the autumn statement. The government is going to has come up with 2.3 billion for a housing infrastructure fund that will provide 100,000 new homes in high demand areas, which is um, for those who are keeping score, that's about four months worth. Does this mean that Philip Hammond is a city metric reader? He might be. I don't know. That would be good. It's a, I don't know. He doesn't. They do say he's um, quite funny in Westminster, but you can't really see it, can you? Or hear it, or tell in any other way. Yeah. They're, they're going to rebuild the uh, the varsity line between Oxford and Cambridge, so that will be uh, that'll be quite good for people who like trains and posh universities. Um. Again, does Philip Hammond read <laughs> Saying people who like trains and posh universities—that's a fairly good Venn diagram of a city metric audience, I suspect. So, John, what are you looking forward to? Is it as cheerful as our tweet is? It's nearly Christmas. I really like Christmas. It is indeed the most wonderful time of the year. I was debating whether it's too early to start listening to Christmas music. Do you think it is? I think it probably is, but we're getting close. What does Christmas mean for cities? Do you know the story of the Garfley goat? No, go on. It's a giant straw goat they build every year in the city of Garfley in Sweden as a symbol of of Christmas. Except it's not really just a symbol of Christmas, it's also... It's also sort of a symbol of man's pig-headed refusal to give up because in something like a third of the years they've been doing this, someone set fire to the goat. Oh, so you're not meant to burn the goat? You're not meant to set fire to it at all, no. um, But so many people have, so many times, that it's kind of now part of the tradition. There was a thing a couple of years ago where a random American tourist um, turned up and set fire to the goat and probably got nicked to arson, and his excuse was, I thought it was part of the tradition. He just thought he was doing the dumb thing. I just think that's so funny that even if it was the tradition to burn the giant goat, you would go, come, random American tourist, come and burn our huge goat. But it's become a a competitive thing. Like, people do try and burn this goat, like, to the point they hide the goat now. Wait, wait, how... What? What? They they used to put the the goat under guard. Sometimes they keep it in secret location. (laughs) I told you this is an amazing story. (laughs) You can read, it's one of my favourite things I've ever written. You can read all about it on citymetric.com. Because I'm familiar with the Boog. Do you know the Boog? No. So this is in Zurich in Switzerland. Um, every year they have a celebration called Sexerleuten, which I'm probably mispronouncing. My Swiss German is not very good. Um, where they build a giant snowman and fill his hat with fireworks. And it happens around St George's Day and they'll set it on fire. And depending on how long it takes for the Boog to burn and his hat to blow up, um, they believe that's a premonition of whether or not you'll have a good summer. But the interesting thing, and you'll like this because you like municipal murdery, um, is that sexualoiton means the sixth hour, and they celebrate the moment when, going into summer, the guilds in Zurich, which was always a guild-heavy city, used to let out at nightfall, but obviously in summer that would keep you working until really late in the evening. 
So the burning of the book marks a moment when the guilds would let you out at six o'clock instead, which is why it's called Six Aloyton. Cool. Can we, can we set fire to something and leave this office? Yep. Let's go. Skylines every two weeks on Acast, on iTunes, or in the podcatcher of your choice. You can also find two more shows by Eric's and colleagues, Seriously and the New Statesman podcast. In the meantime, you can find all the stories about cities, maps, and geography you could ever possibly want on our website, citymetric.com. And since you've listened this far, leave us a nice review on iTunes, eh? Go on, we love you for it. Thanks for listening. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.